Working out is just half the equation to living a healthy lifestyle. Nutrition is the other half. You should be a complete trainer. By mastering nutrition with the National Academy of Sports Medicine, you can become just that. As a certified nutrition coach, you will be able to provide guidance to clients seeking to improve their body composition, athletic performance, and their health through carefully crafted nutrition programs that take age, culture, socioeconomic status, and more into account. Why wait? Start helping clients live their healthiest lives. Sign up for your nutrition certification today at nasm.org cnc or call 1-800-460-6276. You have the opportunity to impact your client's life in all aspects. The updated weight loss specialization will help trainers in many ways expand their career. For the first time, we talk about the psychosocial aspects, the sociocultural. You're going to be able to truly understand what your clients are going through when they have a specific weight loss journey. All new information, new trends. We were able to develop what we called personas. To provide examples of what you might experience as a fitness professional when you encounter a client. And build confidence as the months go by. I'll feel more comfortable in my skin. My self-confidence will improve. Empathy is something that runs through the weight loss specialization. It's about guiding people. Regarding nutrition, regarding exercise. I can go to bed at night knowing that I've done something good for the world. It's great content and a blueprint for how to get results with your clients. We put together a complete solution to help you, the professional, become the next weight loss specialist. I'm Brad Dieter. Ken Miller. Casey DeYoung. Wendy Batts. Nolan Highland. Mike Fanagrassi. Welcome to NASM's weight loss specialization course. You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. I want to say thank you so much for being here. And I would like for you to check out that NASM weight loss specialization course. One of the things that NASM has been really, really focused on, particularly in the last half decade, is focused on the, the content in two major ways. One, uh, the empirical evidence, so what it is that is out there, peer-reviewed and provable. And the other thing is the delivery system of which it's done. And I think that we've made some really great strides in what that looks like. And so it's uh, it's all put out there in really proper ways. So it's easily consumable, more digestible, and you can understand it and make application with it. So you get an opportunity to check out that weight loss specialization from the NASM. I want to now take a moment to welcome my my next guest that we're going to be having. And here's one of the things that's pretty interesting about the guy that we've had is that it's not the first time he's been on an NASM podcast. Now, first time he's been on the NASM CPT podcast, but he's done a three-part series with NASM on HRV. And uh, I am curious to talk about that along with some of the other things that just this gentleman has talked about. And I have to say, this might be, as far as podcasts are concerned, 
a step down from the Joe Rogan experience. So <laughs> that being said, thank you so much to Kevin Longoria for being here. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to be a guest on the show today and dive a little bit into what I do and, and uh, you know, HRV, whatever you guys want to talk about. Sweet. Well, let's talk about what you do. Tell us a little bit about yourself and um, the NASM. Are you a part of the NASM Scientific Advisory Board? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, honored to be a part of the Scientific Advisory Board for 2021. I uh, was recently added, met the uh, other group of scientific advisors the other day. So really excited for what we can do. A uh, really impressive group. I, I by far have the least number of letters behind my name. So really an <laughs> honor to be surrounded by such a great group. All right. Well, good. well, tell us a little bit about if your limited credentialed self then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm Kevin Longoria, Chief Science Officer at a company called Biostrap, a clinical bio, uh, wearable company. By education, I'm a clinical physiologist. I spent the last several years more in a research environment developing and validating nervous system-based protocols for all different types of populations, ranging from primarily neuromuscular diseases all the way up to, as you referenced with the Joe Rogan podcast, I'm the lead physiologist for a number of world champion athletes. Uh, the Henry Cejudos of the world, for those who follow the UFC, all the way to my, my newest venture is actually the lead physiologist for the Iron Cowboy. This guy's about to run 100 Ironmans in 100 days, and I have the uh, heavy task of keeping this guy alive and getting him to finish. So some really exciting work. Uh, I am uh, a little stunned right now with that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how you're going to keep him alive, but uh, I, I want to do a follow-up. <laughs> so I'm already interested in what's going on. Uh, Henry Suhuda, one of my one of my favorite UFC athletes. So congratulations on the work that you guys have put in together. So uh, with what you've said, I, I want to ask the question about nervous system-based training and the difference between what some people think nervous system-based training or fatigue is uh, in some instances and others. And I, I'm going to preface your answer with a quick little story. My brother came over to visit for the holidays and he loves listening to podcasts, right? Like he wants to learn about fitness and exercise. And then he likes to call me up and tell me everything he knows. Now, what's funny is he doesn't listen to my podcast, but he listens to everybody else's podcast. And he, he said, you know, uh, I, I heard you when you said maybe take a little less break in between my sets. Um, and so I started doing it, but I listened to this guy and uh, he talked about nervous system fatigue. So uh, I shortened my rest between my sets and my nervous system was so shot for the next set that uh, I, I was really, I was really gassed. And I was like, I don't, I don't really think that's nervous <laughs> system fatigue. I think you're just fatigued, like your muscles are fatigued. Yeah. What's the difference? What's neural fatigue versus muscular fatigue? And then can we get into the nervous system training? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what we really focus on is the autonomic nervous system, right? So there's this little number out there called heart rate variability that a lot of people have heard of and not frankly too many people really know how to utilize. Right. So this is a, a quick measurement on uh, what we really focus on is the nocturnal data. Right. We can avoid confounds. Looking at HRV in between sets is, is essentially useless. Right. So to take a, a slight step back, the, the primary premise of, of nervous system based training is people are really good at applying stress. Right. Whether that be studying for a test, exercising in the gym. This is the stressor phase, but it's absolutely not the adaptation phase. Right. All of the adaptation that we seek, the muscular hypertrophy, the improved health, all of this occurs during phases of sleep and recovery, and it's largely regulated by our nervous system. 
You can go train all day, every day, but if you're chronically stressed, not adequately sleeping, recovering, your ability to make these physiological adaptations is really limited. So when we say, you know, you're not so ready to train today or today you're very ready to train, how are we basing that? It's based on your nocturnal heart rate variability and the focus is not comparing you to anybody else. You cannot look at heart rate variability in subject A and subject B and say, this guy's more ready to go because his value is higher. It's so much more complex than that. What we really focus on is establishing an individualized baseline. So minimum five to seven days where we should have no major intervention. And we're always comparing today to your trailing baseline to understand your physiological change. Once again, number that's extremely complex and heart rate variability that even I continue to learn about. And this is the majority of my work. Um, people just tend to think that higher is better. And that's really not the case either. So it's, it's very complex and something that we're really trying to build systems upon. So can you then explain what is heart rate variability? Uh, what, is it, uh, what, it, what does it actually do? What does it provide? Uh, what are you reading? Kind of break that down for us. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's uh, once again, extremely complex. There's a lot of different ways to interpret heart rate variability. Um, in general, what it is, is a uh, we're looking at kind of it, variation in between each successive heartbeat. Right. So historically, we would look at an ECG and say your beats are supposed to fall very consistently. Um, recently, there's been a ton of research about it, understanding that there's actually supposed to be a lot of variability in your heart rate. Every time you breathe in, your heart rate should speed up a little bit, a little bit of sympathetic activation. When you breathe out, it should slow down. And this is what's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. But this little ongoing game of tug of war between our sympathetic and parasympathetic is allowing us to actually quantify the autonomic nervous system. Now, why is it so important to quantify the autonomic nervous system is largely because it controls all of these involuntary processes, right? The, the more obvious ones are things like our resting heart rate and our uh, respiratory rate. We're not thinking about breathing or our heart beating right now. It's, it's occurring more in the background. But even more importantly, it's controlling things like our inflammatory processes, our stress hormones, our immune system function. And for this, you know, that there's marked changes in different disease populations, uh, significant decreases in, in nine out of the 10 leading causes of preventable death in our country. So this, this really, to me, comes back to redefining what health and fitness really is. And I know this is a shared mission among all of NASM. And I think that's why we're, we're you know, so well aligned here is health and fitness should not necessarily be defined by big muscles and a thin waistline, right? It should be defined by your physical health, mental health, your you know, ability to play with your kids at the end of a long work day. All of these types of things really accurately reflect health. And how do you measure these things? It's measurements such as heart rate variability, sleep quality, all these other factors. Yeah, it's important when you get older. <laughs> in my youth, none of that stuff was really that important. Uh, you know, the, the sleep, the, my, my performance, my outcomes, all of that was important. But staying up late and, you know, lifting weight, like, you know, I, I didn't put it together about health and wellness. I just wanted to be able to jump higher. I want to be able to do the, the, flip, the flips or the tumbling routines that I did and not get injured, which I did. Um, so I want to talk to you about this readiness. And I'm, I'm interested in it because as I measure my HRV, and I, I just use the Apple Watch, right? I have an Apple Watch. I, I measure it. I got an app on my phone next with and so probably not as, I don't know, probably not as accurate as like a bio strap, but you know, I, I wear it and I track it and I follow it over time. And sometimes I feel really good, but my HRV doesn't indicate that I feel really good. And sometimes I just want to go to bed, but my HRV is relatively high for me. 
explain me to me. Like, what, what does that mean? And why, why, if my body says I'm not ready, but my brain says I'm raring to go, what's going on? So I think you touched on an important point there, which is clinical reliability of the data, right? When we're utilizing this little number to develop a program, modify a program, assess the efficacy of an intervention, uh, this little number becomes extremely important in terms of accuracy. And in my opinion, where, where certain wearables tend to fall short. But to your point, there are days where absolutely you can wake up feeling great, but your nervous system is not ready for adaptation or you're at an increased risk of injury. This is uh, what I spend a lot of time researching and talking about on the Joe Rogan podcast, you know, with, with Henry Cejudo, an Olympic gold medalist, one of the best athletes of our generation, transitioning sports, coming from wrestling, it was always go hard every single day, no pain, no gain mentality. And I had to go and start to tell him, you know, today's a better day to take a rest day. I know you feel really good, but have some faith in the process. You know, it takes a few weeks and you start to come around. So you, you made a, a comment a second ago, all you cared about was your performance and your outcomes. Well, what if I told you, you know, taking that rest day will actually improve your performance and your outcomes and decrease your risk of injury, which is the biggest concern. You got to really let, let, let the data lead. Once again, it's extremely complex. It's hard to build systems around it. This is what I used to, you know, charge thousands of dollars per month for elite, you know, one-to-one -one training that I'm really trying to build into algorithms and machine learning concepts now. So my question now would be, what do, what do you mean when you say a rest day? Because we have all kinds of rest days now that have zero to do with what many people in the population might even look at as rest. So uh, a Henry Cejudo rest day could could be a five to 10K run. And or is it a day off? What does that mean? So very rarely should you absolutely take a day off. There, there is a, a time and a place for it here and there. Um, the, the way it works is if you're not fully recovered, then you should actively recover, right? So there's passive recovery, kind of the, the day off and you know, taking a few steps in here and there. But the, what we're really researching now is, is you know, active recovery. I, I, did a, I led a research study with a percussive therapy device, and we found that a three-minute sleep intervention actually improved sleep efficiency and, and a number of awakenings. So three minutes before bed actually delivered 15 minutes more of deep sleep per evening. So you should never do nothing. You should really focus on active recovery. But the days that you are most ready for adaptation, these are the days that you should really hit it the hardest. And then over time, you start to gain predictability when it's all N equals one experimentation, which is really where wearables come in. You understand my nervous system was this ready. I applied this dose of stress and this is what I looked like the following day. So now you really start to build, you know, routines around understanding when you should have these rest or recovery days. Okay. Uh, is there a correlation between, you had mentioned, I'm just going to go back to some of the things you talked about. One is you had mentioned um, breathing in and inhalation is more comparable to uh, sympathetic and uh, the breathing out, the expiration is more comparable to the parasympathetic. So um, with that being said, we breathe in and out. <laughs> so, I mean, am, am, I, am I nervous, not nervous? Am I excited, not excited? Uh, is there a correlation between what you said and maybe when I get in a cold shower and I go, because ah, 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 I'm, I'm gasping to breathe in, I'm not breathing out in that moment. <laughs> so what are, what are these correlations? Yeah, I mean, you, you could, I guess, piece some things together. I, I, don't, I don't, usually don't like to get more into the theoretical, like what's really established is that the nervous system is always playing a game of tug of war all of the time, right? So when you're breathing in, you're sympathetic, it's just saying speed things up a little bit. When you're breathing out, it's slowing things down. Absolutely, that, that cold therapy, right? That, that's a largely sympathetic response. And the mm -hmm. reason that it, it benefits things like recovery is because of what we call the parasympathetic rebound. 
So actually cryotherapy, ice baths, the, the good stuff doesn't happen while you're in it. The suffering is a means to an end. All the good stuff happens thereafter. So I guess you could make a case as to a very uh, acute sympathetic response, right? You get in the cold and you freak out and you inhale a bunch. But I, I would imagine your heart rate is obviously speeding up more sympathetic dominance, but you still have your parasympathetic system working at that time too. So yeah, it's, it's a good question, but it, yeah, it's, it's hard to, I guess, quantify. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to catch you. <laughs> just trying to catch you in something. See if uh, I'll make something up. I like yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I'm wondering also like, what is it, what does it mean then to, to work with heart rate variability and why, you know, you, you talked about an N of one. So we're all individually doing tests on self. And I guess one of the great things about what you're able to do is you can aggregate content and that's going to provide a lot of significant value for, for you. But if I'm looking at this and I know people who are like, Hey, I need to learn more about heart rate variability, but they don't even know where to start. Um, you know, I, I remember when I first started looking into it, I, I didn't know if a low number was good or a high number was good. So um, I kind of, where do we start as a beginner? Walk us through what are the bare essentials of what we should know and understand about heart rate variability. And then I want to get into figuring out more about what this DC brain potential is in a moment. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So heart rate variability is, is once again, very difficult to compare two people side by side. And this is really where the need to establish an individual baseline comes in. I think something that, that we're doing a little bit better at BioStrap is, is this five-day baseline period where we basically tell you to wear the BioStrap and you're going to get a, a rather boring experience for the first five days, right? We don't want to tell you to modify anything. And heart rate variability is one piece of a very large picture. All, you know, dozens of sleep parameters and everything we're looking at. The whole idea is to gain an objective understanding of where you're starting from on all of these biometrics, including heart rate variability. And we do a population level comparative analysis and we're going to take each one of these biometrics, compare you to people of the same gender, age, you know, diagnosis, athletic goal, whatever this may be, kind of a level of like client phenotyping. And then you create like a radar chart, right? So you understand these are my strengths. These are my deficiencies. And then this is where I used to do everything manually. And what I'm building algorithms around now is how do we develop programs that really exploit our strengths, keep us good at what we're good at? We never want to sacrifice that while really cleaning up any of these functional deficiencies that are limiting adaptation, increasing risk of injury, right? So now we have this data from a baseline. We have this list of interventions that have been validated to move the needle, but then comes the need that human physiology likes to play tricks on us. It's extremely complex. We could have two people of the exact same phenotype and apply the exact same intervention and they're going to have different outcomes, right? So the idea there is we're you know, applying an intervention with data-driven confidence, but we always need to check our work. So you establish this baseline, then you start a new nutrition program, new training method, new recovery technique, and you're objectively quantifying at the individual level statistically significant change. This is what we're really good at alerting you at as well. What is good change? What's bad change? We can automate all of that because it largely can be deduced down to if, if thens, right? So with that, it's like heart rate variability. Um, you do not want to see an acute change in your heart rate variability. People think, you know, higher is better. And I could argue long term, absolutely. But if you went from, say, 50 millisecond baseline to 90 overnight, that threw your nervous system out of whack. You want to see a increase but steady over time. And the real goal is minimal what we call covariance. You don't want very much day to day change, but you want to see a steady upward slope. But when you see, say, an acute change, largely a dip, 
This is showing a big increase in risk of injury. This is what a lot of the research supports, particularly in strength and power development. But then once again, it becomes very confusing because HRV is a very poor predictor of performance and injury risk in endurance athletics. It's a very high, you know, indicator of performance and risk in, in strength and power more, you know, the uh, fast switch type stuff. So it's so complex that it's hard to even explain in a you know, 30, 45 minute podcast. But this is once again, where, where we need to build systems around it. It's difficult to go train everybody how to interpret it, but it's rather easy to equip a, a trainer with kind of the, the AI and everything. At the end of the day, the trainer needs to understand what's going on here, but we can streamline a lot of that legwork for them. Interesting. Do people ever do this with HRV, like uh, like VO2 max or a one rep max? Are they like, what's your what's your HRV? And they're like, what's yours? And then they compare them and try to figure out just who's better at life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I my, brother, that. <laughs> my brother's trying to figure out what his HRV is. And he's like, uh, it's this. And I can tell he's trying to figure out what mine is. And I'm, I won't tell him. I won't tell him what my, my average is over the last month or year. So yeah, but I, what we I should ask people is, yeah, instead of what is the number, how much have you improved in the last month? That, that's a more uh, meaningful question for HRV. Well said. Yeah, well <laughs> said. Well said. And I think that's, that's really what we're all looking at. So many times people want to look at the big guy and be like, oh, how much do you bench press? What do you squat? And really, um, most of the big guys that I've ever met have said, I don't know <laughs> in general. <laughs> Um, but they always look at, you know, what their progression looks like and, you know, patting people on the back for, uh, pushing through challenges versus patting in the people on the back for just having, uh, high PRs and, you know, great VO2 max. So that, yeah, that it, progression it, change is important. Yeah. And it, it's an athletic world. We're absolutely not, not ignorant to that. But the, the case that I like to make to people is kind of the, the understanding, you know, I'm, I'm unhealthy because I'm overweight and therefore I should try and lose weight when really it's like I'm overweight because I'm unhealthy and I should get healthy, right? So when you're trying to get healthy, not just lose weight, you start focusing on the right parameters, which once again, things like HRV amongst many others, but. Yeah. And I think it's also important to point out that, you know, when it's really hard for people in a lot of instances to, to look at obesity as a disease and we're still oftentimes stuck on the, you did it to yourself mentality. And, and in, in some instances, yes. And in some instances, no. And there are genetic factors and there are many things that are associated with it. And there are a lot of inflammatory components that are going along with it. And a lot of um, uh, hormonal balance, imbalance issues that take place. And so again, like nobody was like, Hey, you, you're, you're here's, you your heart disease, you did it to yourself and you did this cancer to yourself. But, but we, I don't think anybody's actively out there doing it. I mean, some people are for sure, but it's just a, a challenge to help people. And you as a clinical physiologist probably have some insight into what this looks like and what this means for people and to try to take some of the potential guilt and blame that people put towards certain things and remove that because you have an insight into some of these physiological factors that actually facilitate this obesity as a disease. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's largely going to come down to a genetic predisposition and that ties into the hormones and everything. But the, the starting line is not equal. And that's why it becomes very difficult to, to judge anybody because you don't understand where their starting line is. I think we, we can all relate to the, 
befriend that, you know, eats fast food every single day and, and maintains a six pack than the, you know, individual that's, that's trying their hardest and perhaps even gaining weight. Once again, probably because they're utilizing the wrong metrics to kind of define their success. But in this population is especially important to kind of take a step away from things like, like the scale weight and, well, you know, one metric that we measure with the BioStrap is arterial and peripheral elasticity. We can measure arterial age, right? So you take a sedentary individual and you get them moving, perhaps that scale weight's not going to change if they're increasing their hydration habits, which should actually be, you know, absolutely be a portion of the, the training paradigm there. So perhaps their scale weight increases and that's punishment, right? That's discouragement, attrition. Right. Um, when we focus on the right metrics, particularly like arterial age, um, I've seen people take three to five years off their arterial age in the first month of just getting daily steps in, right? So when you talk yeah. about changing people's lifestyle, you need to understand how to positively reinforce. And this, this is different population by population. To them, they need to be seeing meaningful progress. And that's probably not going to happen in the mirror fast enough. So you need to revert to these types of metrics and say, what are you doing this for? Hopefully for health, not for, you know, what you look like in the mirror. When that's the case, you show three to five years off their arterial age in the first year. And it's like, man, this is working. I want to keep going. Yeah. You know, to, to change human behaviors, you ought to make uh, people feel good about it. The most basic human psychology. And that's, I think, a big part of tying in the wearable data as well as the, the constant positive reinforcement if you're doing things right. And perhaps a little negative reinforcement if you're doing things wrong. You know, I had a wonderful conversation just recently with um, a clinical psychologist named Dr. Sean Horn, and I wanted to talk about associations of guilt and blame uh, regarding how people feel towards exercise and outcomes. And her real focus is on guilt and blame. And she said, you know, nobody, nobody makes progress by feeling being made to feel guilty. It's just not how people are going to move forward. They're not gonna, they're not gonna feel like blaming or being blamed or feeling guilty is ever gonna lead them to a positive place. And it's gonna make them oftentimes wanna shut down more. Uh, they get a lot more uncomfortable and they don't work towards things that they may normally want to work for because though an outcome is desired, the desire to work towards that outcome is no longer there. And it's it's oftentimes because we uh, don't feel supported. We, we you know, guilt and blame and all that stuff. Just, it doesn't support anybody. So when you talk about positive outcomes, and you can have so many people that are probably listening to this podcast going, I love it when somebody yells at me to go to, in a class and do things. But it, it's not like actual belittlement, right? <laughs> like it's, it's a means of motivation that may work well for you. But it's it's not something that, you know, everybody, everybody likes to hear good job. Everybody likes to feel like they're respected for what they're doing and that there's some type of accolades for, if not the outcomes, but the efforts that get put into it. So I, I just think it's vitally important that we might not understand everything that's going on physiologically, but it is important for us to understand at least one component of behavior and motivation, and that is the support that people need from us. And even when you do bark at maybe a client, like, come on, you got it, like it's a motivational version of it. And there are changes, like stress changes people too. And those stresses can come in many, many forms and a chronic um, uh, manifestation of stress 
is seen in numerous ways. And it is seen through a systemic inflammatory process that can lead to things, but it's also seen in depression and anxiety um, and, and pathologies uh, all through the body. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that you are the reason why somebody's depressed, right? But, you know, we need to be the reason why somebody feels elevated. Absolutely. hundred percent. You know, the, the little, little hormone called cortisol has a huge effect on, on things like your ability to lose weight, specifically things like visceral fat, the, the more dangerous type. So I, I agree. And, and it t- really comes down to why I think, you know, the, the trainer component cannot be discounted. I, I think a lot of people in my industry are trying to see how we can kind of skip over the trainer direct to consumer, but the, the need for that human connection, there needs to be the trainer. They need to establish a relationship with their client. They need to understand what's going to you know motivate that client, what type of reinforcement. I, I've been running corporate wellness programs where I can talk to, you know, health about these people all day and, and make the case that, you know, do you want to live long enough to enjoy your money? And, and frankly, they, they don't care what, what to them is, is cognitive function. So I have to now take the same heart number, you know, heart rate variability and do all the research in terms of cognitive function, outcomes, risk of neurodegeneration and such, because that's what they care about more than, you know, unfortunately having enough energy to play with their kids at the end of the day, you need to, you know, understand your client well enough and always take a one-to-one approach. And once again, that's why the technology is never going to replace. And I think that's a paradigm that people think is going to happen. And I, I don't, I don't see it. Right. Right. I agree. Uh, I want to talk about this other component that sometimes you put into it. And this is one that you talked about when you were on a Joe Rogan experience and it was about the DC brain potential. What is, what is that? And how does that play into this that you do? So that, that's actually measured from a different technology. It's something I've, I've slightly moved away from simply because the compliance wasn't there. You would have to put an electrode on your forehead every day for about two minutes first thing in the morning. And if you did anything like use the restroom or when ate first, the data would be completely skewed. So I found it to be less usable over time. But essentially it was, you know, direct current brain potential. It was allowing us to take a more quantitative approach to your central nervous system throughout the day. Um, generally now I, I rely more on, you know, um, utilizing more of like a clinical test of sensory integration of balance. We can do, you know, throw our sensor on, on the, the ankle and we can look at your visual vestibular, you know, proprioceptive balance and kind of reverse engineer this. It, it's a very valuable metric, but one, it's expensive. Two, people don't really want to do it. And three, they just don't stick with it long enough. But it's a very valuable one for looking at readiness for specific type of adaptation and primarily anything that has to do with kind of a, you know, like neuromuscular, like skill work, like a, you know, a corrective exercise and such, like your readiness to remember patterns and such. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So let me then follow up. I want to ask about um, kind of this this readiness, right? So the the HRV is very popular now. A lot of people are talking about it. Um, Research studies, I'm sure, are coming out about it. It's not an area of focus for me. So is there a particular research study that you have read or been a part of that just made you go, that, that's incredible? Um, I mean, it, it, I guess, depends on the, the population. There was a pretty amazing study, ra- rather small N group. I think it was about 30 um, that I can perhaps give you a link to share after this, because I, I think it was by Altini and guys, some of the leaders in HRV. But they uh, it was in a group of cyclists. They had essentially half of the group do a more, you know, periodized training plan and then a, a separate half do more daily undulating based on uh, 
a natural log of root mean squared. So once again, we can talk about the same data in multiple different ways, but looking at the natural log, looking at a seven-day rolling baseline, and then basically looking at deviation there to guide between um, high-intensity interval training, lactate threshold training, and then kind of more low-intensity fat-burning training. And so two people, or two different groups, ultimately had a similar training scheme in terms of like total stress or total volume. But the group that did the heart rate variability guided training had you know, statistically significant greater improvements in, in their, um, their watt test at the end, their VO2 max. Um, none of them had a risk of injury. Uh, they had four out of the five highest improved and none of the, none of the lowest five, like lowest improved. So it's pretty amazing. And, and it was actually incorporating a few more rest days. But on the, the days that the heart rate variability indicated high training, they, they increased the stress volume there to account for it. So total volume over the duration, pretty similar, but more recovery days in between. And these guys had, you know, greater physiological gains. And this wow. was elite cyclists where, you know, moving a little bit is, is a big deal. These guys, it was pretty significant. I, once again, I don't like to make stuff up. I don't remember any of the numbers. I, right now, all my research is COVID. That's what I do today. Building oh, is that right? All right. We'll yeah. talk about that in a moment. But I do want to stick with the, with this because I know elite cyclists have some of the most significant uh, oxygen utilization that's out there. Uh, pretty incredible athletes altogether. And so we're talking about uh, adjusting for volume and people having basically the same amount of volume over the course of time, but one group follows this HRV method and the other one just a, kind of a, a linear pre-planned pre, pre program. Uh, that's, that is significant. That is significant. What, it, what does that mean for now how you make those applications with your athletes? Largely, you know, the, the athletes don't care about the research for the most part. I, I do my best to translate that to them. But in general, they, they kind of want to be told what to do and, and maybe a little bit of why they're doing it. But in general, I just I take all of this research in and then I, I have a, a very good pool of guinea pigs that trust me enough to to go through these types of processes, very similar to Henry Cejudo. Right. So they, they believe me enough and we just are always testing with them, modifying their training this way based on the, the natural log of the root mean squared. And then the following day, I'm doing a, a morning pulse report to look at their their uh, HRV in the morning as opposed to the nocturnal session. And so it's, it's like I said, I live more in a research environment than the training environment, more, you know, a little bit less hands on. But um, I, I do have a, a handful of the, the clients that we're always using as guinea pigs to validate these things. So once again, I'm more of a data aggregator and then I create systems out of it and then I go test them and then kind of build the algorithms to streamline some of that. Well, uh, you, you definitely are working with some some pretty cool athletes and uh, I've been a big fan of Henry's for quite some time. So uh, it's, it's very cool to hear that that's one of the guys that you're working with. Um, just anything else before we do a sign off, I want to, anything else from you that you think us, we as the fitness professionals should better understand and need to maybe better understand things that we should or could incorporate into our training with our clients, regardless of population. Uh, or do you have different ideas for different populations? Because we have all sorts of trainers and how to implement and utilize HRP. Yeah, I think one of the biggest breakthroughs that I had, and it's a relatively obvious one is, you know, our approach cannot just live within a training facility, right? And even virtual training, you know, two, three hours a week is not significant lifestyle modification. Our approach needs to incorporate things like sleep and ideally some of these other biometrics. 
but you know, understanding we need to be really good at applying the stress, but we need to be better at kind of connecting the dots between everything. Understanding that if we can improve somebody's deep sleep and REM sleep, that's going to have a huge effect on their, their human growth hormone and their ability to make their physiological gains. So well, once again, uh, the, the kind of my idea is that everything needs to shift to more 24-7 lifestyle coaching, not just physical training inside of a gym. I think uh, the, the data now exists. There's, you know, perhaps disparities device to device in terms of the clinical integrity of such. So, I would, uh, you know, not, not a shameless plug for my company, but I, I encourage everybody to do their research. But incorporating things like sleep into the parent uh, training paradigm are, are so important and really what we're, what we're doing at the elite level, but that can be cost effectively available to all of you. All right. I want to, that's going to lead me to a couple of things. One is what, what effects do sleep have on heart rate variability and what effects do we, we also see a lot of research now about the difference between exercise and physical activity. So what are there correlations between um, exercise, uh, regular physical activity that may be considered non-exercise and sedentary lifestyles where people are, you know, primarily seated or reclined that are producing, you know, uh, less than or equal to 1.5 mets um, while, while they're in this kind of seated or reclined position. Is there, is there uh, a heart rate variability study, research, content that you guys have put together that show a difference between an exercising person, a reg regularly physically active person, and a sedentary person? Absolutely. Uh, the uh, more elite endurance athletic population um, ha obviously have a very high VO2 max, and that's very strongly correlated with the highest levels of, of heart rate variability, specifically root mean squared. So you don't get confused. There's nonlinear, linear. There's all of these different ways of measuring heart rate variability. I'm, I'm talking about root mean squared. This is the one that's correlated with nine out of 10 leading causes of death. And those of you that are familiar, you know, highly correlated with your oxygen utilization, your VO2 max, which is among the best predictors of cardiovascular disease, neurodegeneration, immune dysfunction. So elite athletes who are very physically active tend to maintain the highest heart rate variability and have the lowest covariance, lowest day-to-day -day change. And this is largely a function of improved stress resilience. Then on the other end of the spectrum is the sedentary, perhaps comorbid population. They tend to have markedly decreased heart rate variability relative to the same age healthy counterparts. By healthy, I mean lack of disease. So once again, you can absolutely do some degree of phenotyping based on this, but you can also find a, a, an extremely healthy individual with no disease who has a, a apparently low heart rate variability. And perhaps that's because they're not taking good care of their, their you know, gut health, which is 90% of the, the vagal nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. So it, it becomes a little bit difficult to apply like a, a direct correlation on it, but there absolutely is a, you know, th th there's some kind of bucketing we can do based on it. All right. Well, there's another another buzz term or topic, which is gut health. Is there something correlated there with with gut health? Because I've I've been doing some study just with that for uh, a project for type two diabetes. So, uh, and there does seem to be a correlation. So, is there a correlation with heart rate variability? Some of the other outcomes in gut health. 
Yeah, we're, we're actually doing some studies with a partner right now correlating CGM data with, with heart rate variability. And um, too early to, to come talk any conclusions there, but it's kind of more of an obvious one. We expect to find something pretty interesting there. Um, but in general, you know, no one takes care of their gut. At my previous facility, we would do stool testing and we would do oh. everything to tell people what was wrong <laughs> with their gut. And we, we came to the conclusion that you should proactively treat people's guts. Everyone's are largely jacked up. Um, so, you know, what we do with BioStrap, kind of once again, where I really want to live is on the preventative side of things. I, I love optimizing athletes. That's not, not really what I went to school for and everything. So I do it when the opportunity comes, but 80% of conditions are preventable through lifestyle modification. Doctors are still saying eat healthy and exercise. So we need to do better, right? So um, some algorithms that I recently created with one of our nutrition partners is we're obviously taking your physical activity, caloric expenditure, everything into account. We're looking at specific patterns in your biometric data, particularly to get another curveball, a frequency domain heart rate variability. So we can look at your high frequency bandwidth, which is largely parasympathetic. Once again, about 90% of that is regulated by the gut. We see significant deficiencies there. We'll do a more intensive two-week gut restore protocol with fermented foods, no gluten, no soy, no dairy, a lot of hydration, no caffeine, you know, just to list off a few of the parameters there. And you'd be amazed how fast you can move the needle. This to me wow. is the biggest proof of calories in, calories out is, is crap for lack of a better word. Sorry for saying that. Um, but it, you know, you can lose this weight simply by getting rid of like gut inflammation just by cleaning up your gut. And we get these people to do it for two weeks and we say, go have some gluten. And I promise you, you will never eat gluten again. If I challenge anyone listening to this to go gluten free for at least two weeks, and then then go try it. You are living in kind of this threshold of inflammation that you're unaware of. As soon as your gut is clean and you you jack it up again, you, you will know the difference. So that's something we're really focusing on as well. All right. Well, that's interesting because, you know, one of the things that we like are, uh, uh, empirical evidence. And so, uh, you know, this, uh, I, I don't know, it might be uh, an anecdotal for now, but there might be some empirical evidences that are showing these things. I'd love to see what that looks like. I don't think anybody's confused as to the benefits of some of the fermented foods like the, the kimchi and the kombuchas and maybe even the, some of the yogurts and, um, uh, what's that, a kefir? My wife always says it's kefir, kefir. <laughs> so, um, but you know, with a lot of these foods too, they oftentimes say, "Hey, this may taste kind of awful, so we're going to put a bunch of bad for you stuff in these relatively and quite healthy foods in order to to switch things up." So, uh, I, I'm I'm interested in in learning more even about that and the the gut health and what it means and what it does and how it's supported and obviously uh, this incredible correlation between vagus baby when we look at that big vagus nerve and um, our parasympathetic nervous system and in fact uh, I opened a company several years ago called Recover um, but but we almost <laughs> we played with uh, different variations of uh, Vegas and uh, um, because we wanted to address the, the parasympathetic nervous system. And, you know, it was going to be 11 because it's the 11th nerve. So it would be like a Roman numeral. There were so many things that we we're playing with because we understand the importance of, of the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, I don't know if I realized that it was that correlated with, with the gut, though. I, what was the number you gave? 90% something. Can you repeat that one? 
Yeah, about 90% of parasympathetic uh, function is regulated by the gut. I, I don't remember the exact saying, but I, we have more, you know, kind of microbiome cells, microbiota uh, cells in our body than we actually have human cells. So this has a huge impact on obviously you know, our, our hormones and digestion, all of these things. But uh, beyond that, a lot of cognitive function and stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. All right. Well, look. I appreciate you being on the show, taking some time. Kevin, I want you to let people know if they have questions. How? What's a good way for them to find you and plug yourself and plug Biostrap? Yeah, feel free to reach out to me directly, Kevin at Biostrap.com. Um, not, not really a, a social guy, too busy with all my research and everything, but feel free to reach out there. You can check out our website at Biostrap.com or Biostrap on just about any social media channel. Fantastic. All right. Kevin Longoria, thank you so much for being here. Y'all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you. My name is Rick Ritchie. You can uh, look me up. Uh, send me an email, rick.ritchie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, at nasm.org, or look me up on Instagram, dr.rickritchie. And uh, appreciate it. This is the NASM CPT Podcast.